Take a Bible, find John 13. Corey read our passage earlier, so we're not going to do that again right now. There are notes in the bulletin. You can track along with the message this morning. Sunday, January 13th, 2019 is the Sunday that we started our walk through the Gospel of John, a series that we've titled Believe. We're going to talk about the importance of believing the truth about Jesus this morning. We made our way all the way up with several breaks along the way to John 12. Earlier this calendar year, we paused at John 12, and we've picked up right where we left off at John 13. It was a good place to hit the pause button. There's a natural break between John 12 and John 13. There's a period between the end of John 12 and the beginning of John 13, a period of several months that pass in Jesus' life. And when we pick up in John 13, verse 1, we're very, very close to the Passover. In fact, we are at the Passover. This is what Bible scholars call the farewell discourse. The farewell discourse was delivered in the context of a Passover celebration. Uh, they call it the, uh, excuse me, they call it the farewell discourse because this is Jesus saying farewell. It's Jesus saying goodbye. It's the last conversation that he has with the disciples before he's going to be crucified. There is some remarkable teaching in this discourse. When you leave John 12 in the rear view, that's Jesus' public ministry, and it's come to an end. He's no longer talking to the crowds. He's no longer talking to the masses. This farewell discourse is something that he delivered or he shared with the disciples, and John has written down much of it for us to study and us to read. There is a detail in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, that helps us make sense of what's going on in this particular story. The detail in Luke 22 is this. Luke tells us the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest. So if you're a parent and you have kids, plural, you know how this goes. If you've ever ridden in the car with more than one child in the back seat, you know how this goes. You look back and there's fighting, there's arguing, so-and-so touched me, so-and-so's breathing on me, so-and-so's looking at me, so-and-so crossed the seatbelt line. This happened to me recently, as recently as yesterday. We were driving down the road and I looked in the back seat and people were getting punched in the face. And you say, what in the world is going on here? That's what the disciples are doing. It's every bit as childish as children arguing about the seatbelt line in the back seat of the car, only this is made worse because of the setting. They're actually sitting together around the table celebrating the Passover. They're thinking about God saving His people from slavery in Egypt and bringing them out into the wilderness, and they're fighting. They don't really understand it yet, but within 24 hours, Jesus will be murdered. Can you imagine? In hindsight, if you're one of the 12 looking back on this and thinking, how silly, how foolish, how stupid, how petty could I have been not knowing what was literally hours away? What a wasted opportunity. I should have taken better notes. Instead, I'm arguing with James about who's going to be fifth or sixth in the kingdom of God. They're arguing. They're fighting. It's a shocking thing to look back in hindsight and to see the foolishness 
of them fighting. It does help us understand what's going to happen in our passage this morning. There's another shocking part of this story that I want to point out to you. It involves the spiritual realm, and particularly the satanic realm. If you read through the Gospel of John, one of the things you will not find, you will not find stories about Jesus casting demons out of people. You find those stories in Matthew, you find them in Mark, you find them in Luke. You don't find them in John. John focuses all demonic, satanic, wicked, spiritual influence on the person of Satan. And in this passage, John describes the role of Satan in Jesus' betrayal in his death. We're not going to focus on this this morning, but I want to acknowledge it and I want you to see it. Look at verse 2. John says, the devil put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. Not a lesser demon, not a high-ranking demon, but the devil himself is working on Judas's heart. Verse 27, a shocking verse says, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered in to him. He is in a very real sense possessed by and controlled by Satan in this moment. And you may notice the very last detail in our passage at the end of verse 30. John says, it was night. In the Gospel of John, this detail, it's night, never just means, check your watch, this is what time of day it is. It always refers to darkness, in particular, spiritual darkness. This was a dark, evil, wicked, devilish, satanic night. And you read all of those details. It's a little bit shocking to actually stop and think about what John is describing here. It should shock you, but it should not frighten you. You remember early, if you've been here the whole time we've been studying the gospel of John, the very first week we looked at the prologue of John's gospel, the first 18 verses. I told you that week, everything that you find in the gospel of John is somehow contained in the prologue, the first 18 verses. It summarizes all of it. And one of the things you find in John's prologue, John chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, is that Jesus is the light come into the world Jesus is light come into darkness, and John says the darkness has not overcome the light. Meaning, we remember from the very beginning, Jesus wins in this story. Even in John 13, where it's very, very spiritually dark, we remember that Jesus wins. And that brings us to the big idea. I've stolen it from the Gospel of Mark simply because Mark said exactly what I want to say about this passage. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what's going on in this story where Jesus washes the disciples' feet and he talks about what's to come. This is a lived-out picture of Jesus coming, not so that we would serve him, but that he would serve us, and he serves us by giving his life as a ransom. Now, one of the things I want to acknowledge before we really dig in is that there are a lot of characters in this passage. This is a long passage, 30 verses. We could chop it up, we could look at shorter chunks, but we've taken these 30 verses as our passage. We could talk about all the different characters in this passage. We could talk about the disciples as a group, the 12 apostles who are with Jesus 
in this moment. We could single in on Peter. Peter shows up in this passage. He's mentioned specifically. We could single in on Judas. That would sort of give you opposite ends of a certain spectrum. You could talk about Peter. You could talk about Judas. We could even speculate and spend a lot of time talking about the unnamed disciple. I'm going to mention him again briefly here in a moment. There's an unnamed disciple. Most Bible scholars tell you that this unnamed disciple is the John who wrote this book. He refers to him in this storyline here and other places as an unnamed disciple whom Jesus loves, meaning they were BFFs. They were best buddies. They had a unique relationship, John, the apostle, and Jesus. We could talk about Satan. We could focus in on Satan as a character in this story. At first glance, there's all sorts of moving pieces. There's all sorts of characters. It almost feels like a Hollywood movie with an ensemble cast. You know the kind of movie I'm talking about? Not the kind of movie where there's one lead or maybe one or two leads and then a bunch of nobodies, but the kind of movie where there's a whole bunch of somebodies, there's a whole bunch of A-listers in on the same movie. I'll give you a few examples. One would be the, the last Avengers movie. For years, we watched all these superhero movies, and we had a hero and a hero and a heroine and a heroine. And then in the last movie, we put all of them together, and they all get their face on the movie poster, and we say, this is an all-star ensemble cast. Maybe comics aren't your thing. You don't like action movies and superheroes. Maybe you like uh, the Ocean's 11 series or Ocean's 12 or Ocean's 13 or Ocean's 8 or whatever the number is that they come out with next. There's all sorts of A-list actors, people who normally star in a movie, and they all get crammed into one particular film. It's an ensemble cast. This morning, I want to make sure that we're really clear John 13, 1 to 30 is not a story, it is not a scene with an ensemble cast. There is one lead actor in this story, and there is not a close second. There is one hero in this story, this passage, this scene that we're looking at, and his name is Jesus. It would be so easy to look at all these various characters and to get sidetracked into thinking about what's going on, why did they do this, why did they say that, and to miss the main emphasis of this story. The main emphasis isn't Peter, the main emphasis isn't uh, Judas, it isn't Satan, it isn't the unnamed disciple, it isn't the twelve. The main emphasis in this story is on Jesus. And one of the main things that John wants us to see about Jesus is that he is in complete control of this scene. His authority is all-encompassing over what's happening in John 13, 1 to 30. And I want you to see how John highlights this. How does John highlight the authority of Jesus in this story? I'm going to give you five ways. Number one, John tells us that Jesus knew his hour had come. Verse 1, he knew that his hour had come. Up to this point in John, we've read his hour had not yet come, and now all of a sudden we read his hour had come. His hour was his death, his death on the cross. And Jesus knew that time was now. Within 24 hours, he'll be murdered, hung on a cross, and he knows it. 
It's not a surprise to him on any level. Secondly, how do we see his authority? Well, Jesus knew where he stood with the Father. There's no question about the relationship between the Son and the Father, the Son of God and God the Father. Look what we read in verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands. He knew that the Father had given him all authority. He knew that he had come from God. The Father sent him, and he knew he was going back to God. There was no question about what was going to happen after the cross, after the resurrection. He knew all of these things. He knows that his hour has come. He knows where he stands with the Father. This relationship is secure. Thirdly, he knows who will betray him. It's not a question to Jesus. It's not an uncertainty. He knows who will betray him. Verse 11, he knew who was to betray him. He knew. If you look at verse 22, the disciples don't know. The disciples are uncertain about whom Jesus is talking about. But if you look again at verse 26, Jesus knows and he says quietly to John, the one I give the morsel of bread when I've dipped it, this is the one when he dipped the morsel he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Jesus knew who was going to betray him. You might be tempted to say, well, of course he knew. Judas was probably fidgety. He was probably sweating. He was probably making awkward faces and doing awkward things. Listen, it's not just that Jesus figured it out at this dinner. Jesus knew from the beginning. All the way back in John chapter 6, Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, you guys want to leave too? The crowds are leaving. Do you want to walk away? Peter says, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And Jesus says, I've chosen you guys. I've picked you guys to follow me. But one of you is a devil. He knew from the beginning who would betray him. It was no surprise to Jesus. He knew his hour had come. He knew where he stood with the Father. He knew who would betray him. Number four, he knew his disciples. And number five, he knew the Scripture would be fulfilled. He knew who truly belonged to him. There was no question about that. And he knew the Scripture would be fulfilled. Look at John 13, verse 18. He said, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen but Scripture will be fulfilled. And he quotes Psalm 41, a psalm written by David, the king of Israel. A psalm in which David, the king of Israel, talks about a close friend, a man named Ahithophel, a man who had dinner with David on a, a number of occasions. They broke bread together. And a man who betrayed David in a moment of crisis, who went out and hung himself, and who despite this betrayal, God's purpose was fulfilled in David's life. That's Psalm 41. That's the psalm Jesus quotes. And I think you understand why. Jesus is saying that story is about to play out for real. The king of Israel, betrayed by a friend, someone that he had eaten with, this betrayer went out and hung himself, and yet the king of Israel prospers. Jesus says that's what's about to happen right here. The true king, Jesus, is going to be betrayed by a friend, someone that he hands bread to, someone close to him. And despite this betrayal, God's will will prosper in his life. There's a tragic element to the scene. As Jesus quotes Psalm 41, he's talking about a betrayal. He's talking about suffering. 
But you understand that he is ordering Judas. He is commanding Judas. He's not just allowing Judas to go do this. He actually tells him to do it. It's a command. You can see this command in the text. Verse 27, Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. He doesn't just say, yeah, I'm going to let you. He says, Judas, do it. He's commanding Judas, and Judas is doing what Jesus tells him to do. And all of it, this is what John wants you to see. Jesus is in control of this scene. It's a dark night. It's a devilish, satanic night. Jesus is in control. Jesus' authority extends over every detail of this situation. None of it is out of his hands. I just wonder if you believe that. Do you believe that? That Jesus is in complete control of all things? That his authority extends without any bounds? I know in Sunday morning church you're thinking, I think this is a yes. I think I'm supposed to nod and say, yes, I believe that. And it's easy in this room to say, yes, Jesus is in control, yes. I'm just saying, do you actually, really, truly believe that? Does your attitude on any given day reflect the fact that you believe Jesus is in complete control? Do the things that you post on social media reflect the fact that you say you believe Jesus is in complete control of all things? Do the conversations that you have with people on a daily basis, the things you talk about, the way you talk about them, does it reflect the fact that you say, I believe Jesus is in control of all things, that his authority extends without any bound? Do you believe that? When national politics don't go your way, do you believe it? I hope you do. What about when smaller things don't go your way, when your plans for the day fall through? Do you believe it? What about when people speak ill of you, slander you, gossip about you? Do you still believe it then? What about when a close friend betrays you? Do you believe it in that moment? When a spouse walks out or a friend double-crosses you, do you still believe that Jesus is in complete control of all things, that his authority extends over all of it, over everything? What about when you get a pink slip or your 401K plunges or even closer to home, your kids grow up and they leave and they don't just leave the house, but they leave the faith. Do you believe that Jesus is in complete control of all things? It's really easy to say it in this room. It's not hard. You just got to nod your head. Sunday school answer. My question is, do you really believe it? This was a dark night, and John is going to great lengths to show you, to show me, things are not spiraling out of control. Jesus is in complete control of the whole thing. Now, that's good news only if we couple it with the next truth. It's possible, theoretically, that there is someone out there, his name is Jesus, he's in complete control of all things, and he hates us and has a terrible plan for our lives. That's bad news. 
But it's good news when you couple this truth that Jesus is in complete control of all things. He has perfect authority over everything. You add to it this idea that Jesus loves his people. That's good news. Jesus is in complete control of all things. And if you belong to him, you know that he loves you. John shows us this in a couple of ways. How does John describe the love that Jesus has for his people? Number one, he loved his disciples in service. He served them. He showed his love for his disciples by serving them. Look in your text, John 13, verse 4 and verse 5. It says, He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. He took a towel. He tied it around his waist. He poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Most of you know the story. Most of us know the story so well we struggle to see and to feel how shocking this was in the moment. In our minds, we think of this last supper that Jesus had with his disciples, and we tend to picture a scene like this, Da Vinci's The Last Supper. We think, well, there was a nice table. They sat in a straight line. It was awkward because you had to lean down and talk to the person at the end. That's not how they sat and how they celebrated the Passover. More than likely, they sat at a table that looked like this, a U-shaped table. The disciples would have sat all around the edges, laying essentially on pillows and cushions, on their bellies, on their side, faces toward the table, feet, dirty, nasty feet, sticking out towards the edges of the room. You see, Jesus more than likely would have been seated in the host position, top left in this diagram. John, the unnamed disciple, right to Jesus' right hand where he could lean back easily and talk to Jesus quietly without everyone else knowing what was going on. Jesus could respond and not everyone would hear the conversation. Judas, it seems, is sitting in the seat of honor. At least that's what culture dictated in the first century for a Jewish feast. This seat right to the left of the host was the seat of honor and there sat Judas. And as they sat around this table, heads to the middle, feet out, no one had taken the initiative to wash feet. Now, in Odessa, Texas, we have a number of challenges and struggles as a community. One of the things that irks me living here is people throwing trash all over the place. You drive down the road and there's trash. Drive out of town, you pass a certain point where... The trash disappears, and then when you drive back, you say, well, I'm back. There's the trash caught in the barbed wire fence, and you've been in parking lots that are trashy and dirty and nasty, and it's just something that we live with. There's so many people here that don't feel like this is their home. They don't have any incentive or natural inclination to take care of things, and they just throw trash everywhere. It's not exactly the situation that was faced in first century Israel, in Jerusalem in particular. There was really no official sanitation service for a community. There were a few paved roads, bricks would pave certain roads, but there was an awful lot of mud and dirt and trash just thrown out into the streets. People weren't walking around with boots that kept their feet nice and clean. They were just walking around in sandals, and they're walking up and down these streets, and there's mud and there's 
dirt, and there are a lot of animals. There's no cars, so there's no pollution, but there's animal pollution, and it's all over the place. And it's in the streets, and your feet are gross. They walk into this dinner, and custom dictated that someone should wash the feet of the guests. On this night, the disciples were too busy. You remember what they were doing? They're arguing about who's the greatest. Does that sound like a group of people who are going to volunteer to wash feet? No. No one did it. They just had their little petty, childish argument about the pecking order within the group. So, verse 4 says this. It's a shocking verse. Pay attention to the, the vocabulary here. He rose from supper. He's talking about Jesus. He got up. He laid aside his outer garments. He, he put something away. He took a towel, which is the sign of a servant or a slave, and he began to wash the disciples' feet with the water in the basin and the towel that was wrapped around him. When you read that description of what Jesus did at that meal, if you've read the rest of the New Testament, your mind might start sending off signals and saying, hey, that kind of sounds like something else. That kind of sounds like when Jesus came down here. He's on the throne of heaven. And he got up. And he left the throne. And he laid aside the position that was rightfully his. He didn't cling to it. He set it aside. Philippians 2 says he emptied himself, and he emptied himself not by getting rid of anything essential to who he was, but by taking something on the form of a servant or a slave. You think about the miracle and the mystery of the incarnation, and you say, how can I, how can I get my mind to see how amazing that miracle is, that God became man? Not just man, but a, a servant of men. Well, it's kind of like a bunch of guys having dinner and their feet are nasty. And the host gets up and he becomes the servant, the slave of the rest of them. And he washes their feet. That's why Jesus came to earth in the first place. Not to be served, but to serve us. To give his life is a ransom for ours to wash our filth away. He was a slave. He was a servant. He showed his love in this way. You understand two of the dirty feet belonged to Judas. It's a remarkable thing just to think about. Two of those feet belonged to Judas. Jesus washed them. The text says, if you paid attention to verse 18, that Judas lifted his heel against Jesus. That's a Hebrew idiom. It's a, a phrase that doesn't literally mean what it says. It's sort of like in English we might say somebody stabbed somebody in the back. We don't mean you literally put a knife in their back. We just mean you double-crossed them. You betrayed them. That's the idea of lifting your heel. And in this instance, Judas lifts a freshly washed heel against Jesus. You're supposed to see the pun. You're supposed to see the irony. You're supposed to see Jesus loving his disciples through service. Secondly, 
You're supposed to see Jesus loving his disciples in death. In death. We already mentioned verse 1. His hour had come. That hour was not a teaching hour. It was not, it's the hour I'm supposed to walk on water. It was not, this is the hour I cast out demons. That hour was the hour Jesus would die. And it had come. Look at verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. He's troubled in his spirit. Just to rewind in the Gospel of John, back in John 11, Jesus had a friend who died. His name was Lazarus. Jesus made the trip to Lazarus' tomb. John 11 says that as Jesus stood at Lazarus' tomb, he was troubled. Same Greek word. He was troubled. He's looking death in the face. He knows his own death is just weeks away, and he's troubled. If you fast forward to John chapter 12, there's an interesting sign that happens. The Father gives the Son a sign, and Jesus knows it's almost time for him to die, and he begins to tell his disciples, the Son of Man is going to die, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be crucified. And as he talks about his death, John 12, he is troubled. Same word. John 13, it's the eve of the crucifixion. Jesus begins to talk about his betrayal, which will lead to his death, and he's troubled. John 11, troubled. John 12, troubled. John 13, troubled. You know what happens in John 14? Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, let not your hearts be troubled. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus left the throne of heaven, came down here to cleanse us of our filth. As a servant, he died on a cross for our sins. He was troubled in his soul so that we don't have to be troubled. Look, when you stand before a holy God as a sinful person, you ought to be troubled. And Jesus says, I'm going to be troubled for you. You don't have to be troubled. I'm going to die for you. You can live. You don't have to face this trouble. That good news demands a response. When you see who Jesus is, you see his authority, you see his love for his people, how do we respond? Two ways. Number one, we believe Jesus. Number two, we serve each other. We believe Jesus and we serve each other. I think most of the time we get it backward, like Peter. Most of the time we think, I need to do some good stuff for Jesus. And then that's it. I don't really want to do anything nice for anyone else. Like, I I don't want Jesus to serve me. That hurts my pride and my ego. I should do something for Jesus to earn my way, but then I'm going to sit around and let other people serve me. That's what Peter tried to do on this night, and it's completely backwards. The gospel is not a message that Jesus needs you to do something for him. The gospel is a message that Jesus left the throne of heaven to do something, the most important something, for you. He died for you. He wants you to believe that. Look what we read in the, in the text, John 13, verse 19. Jesus said, look, I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Do you know in the original language, the word he isn't there? He just says to the disciples, 
I'm telling you this now so that when it happens, you will believe that I am. I'm the one who left heaven to come down here and be a servant. He wants you to believe that. That's the reason the Gospel of John was written. John 20, 30 to 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. They're not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Some of you have never believed in Jesus. You've gone to church. You've done religious things. You've filled out blanks on a sermon outline. You've gone to VBS, you've gone to youth camp, but you have never actually believed in Jesus. Believe. John wrote these things that you would believe. Jesus predicted these things so that you would believe. Number one, we believe Jesus. Number two, we serve each other. We serve each other. Look at verse 14 and 15. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You're not blessed if you fill out the sermon outline. You're not blessed if you memorize John 13. You're not blessed just because you know John 13. You're blessed if you know what Jesus has done, you believe it, and then you do what he's calling you to do. Serve each other. Sometimes people throughout church history have referred to Christians as people of the cross. That's a good description for a Christian. Person of the cross. Somebody who believes that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. I hope we would be known as people of the cross. Not just people who believe in a God. Not people who believe in a God who does what we want Him to do, but people who believe in a God who died for our sins. People of the cross. I also hope that we would be known as people of the towel. Because I think Jesus is combining both of those things here. People of the cross believe the truth about Jesus, what He came down from heaven to do, and be people of the towel serve each other. That's basic Christianity 101. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to do the kinds of things Jesus did, like serving. It's basic Christianity 101 when you think about church membership. In fact, here at Emmanuel, if you're a member of our church, at some point you've signed our membership covenant. And part of that membership covenant says this, I will participate in the ministry of our church by developing a servant's heart. Can I translate that for you? I will not be the one sitting around the table waiting on someone else to wash my feet. I won't do that. I will have a servant's heart. Why would we expect you to have a servant's heart? Jesus, the one we follow, served us. He was a servant. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Yes, we're people of the cross, we believe in what happened at the cross. We're also people of the towel. We want to live like Jesus. No person can claim to be a person of the cross while stubbornly refusing to be a person of the towel. No person 
can claim to be a person of the cross while saying, I'll serve my friends, but not Judas. I draw the line somewhere. That's not what John's talking about. There's a call, a call to believe. Be a person, a man, a woman, a boy, a girl of the cross. Believe in what Jesus has done on your behalf. And be a person of the towel, a man, a woman, a boy, a girl of the towel. Somebody who is eager to serve like Christ served. 